This is William Chamberlain, and today we have an interview with director Jerry Schatzberg. Mr. Schatzberg has directed Panic in Needle Park, Scarecrow, The Seduction of Joe Tynan, and Sweet Revenge. Sweet Revenge will be showing Saturday, April 12th at the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street at 2 p.m. Now, on to the interview. We're showing your movie, Sweet Revenge, and the original title was Dandy, the All-American Girl. Is it true you had to change the title because there was a pornographic movie out at the same time with the same title? No, uh, not that I remember. Uh, I think the reason they changed it, they tested the film, and uh, it sort of um, did well in in drive-in theaters, and they wanted to give it a little bit more... um, Dandy the All-American Girl didn't sound as much like a vampire film as maybe Sweet Revenge or something, you know. So they just wanted to, uh, they thought by changing a title they'd get a better uh, audience for the film. Sweet Revenge deals with people on the outside. Panic in Needle Park, Scarecrow, and Street Smart also deal with marginal people. And you said you were attracted to these stories. What's the attraction? I don't know. I guess it has to do with my upbringing, uh, you know, being born and brought up in the Bronx where many immigrants had settled. Uh, I was, uh, you know, just part of uh, sort of marginal people for a while. And then, you know, usually the second generation moves on and, and you become part of the community. Could you discuss the origins behind Street Smart and how the story came to you? Street Smart? Yeah, I mean, no, I'm sorry, Sweet Revenge. Sweet Revenge, yeah. Well, yeah, I I was quite lucky with my first three films. They came one after the other, and uh, then uh, Warner Brothers offered me a uh, a deal uh, to sit in an office and try to develop projects. I did that for two years, probably a big mistake, because I had already uh, won the Golden Palm with Scarecrow, and it would have been... I would have probably had a lot of uh, films offered to me, but developing my own projects took a lot of time, and then Warner Brothers just didn't relate to any of them. So after two years, I, the deal was finished, and I, I had to um, move on. Uh, I think the uh, first film that I got after that was Seduction of Joe Tynan. I think it was. Oh, well, well, no, I think I think it was um, Sweet Revenge. I don't remember the um, chronological order of them, but. I, I, at the time that Sweet Revenge came along, I, I hadn't worked in a while, and I needed uh, to do something, and uh, this person called me on the phone. I think she had presented her uh, script to MGM, and they, my name came up in conversation. She called me and said, boy, have I got a script for you. <laughs> that always sounds interesting. This was Brenda Perla, and uh, she sent me the script. And I saw some interesting things in there, and uh, I had had I had made a good relationship with uh, Vilmos Zygmunt by then, and uh, I called Vilmos and I told him about it, and he was free, and he said, "Well, let's let's see what we can do with it." 
So uh, basically, that's how we got started with it. Uh, in Sweet Revenge, you cast Stalker Chaining and Sam Watterson very early in their careers, and you seem to have a keen eye for talent. Al Pacino, Meryl Streep, Amy Irving, Roy Scheider, John Cryer, you cast them early in their careers. Could you discuss how you go about casting? Well, uh, Sam Watterson uh, I had seen on television. Usually when I see somebody, I don't know uh, why. I guess that's part of my talent to be able to decide what I like in acting. I had seen Sam on on the stage, and we went into when we went into casting. We had um, they, they, we we had some pretty good people come in. Uh, it's just that I had my mind set, and I usually do. Once I, once I've seen somebody and I like their acting, I know what I what they're capable of doing. Then I I know I could get that and maybe more. But with Stockard, I hadn't uh, seen her. She had she had come out in a film called Fortune, and got some quite good reviews for that. But I hadn't seen it. Uh, my my first um, choices, or the first people I talked to, were Susan Sarandon and Sissy Spacek, who I thought also would have done really quite wonderful in the part. All different, and and you know the part would have been quite different with each one of them. But MGM was enamored with the reviews that Stockard was getting from uh, Fortune, so I looked at Fortune. And I thought Stockard was you know fantastic. She reminded me, I guess, of a a young female James Cagney. I just thought it might be interesting to uh, to do it with her because she wasn't the you know she didn't have the looks of a movie star. She just was really a different personality, and I, I like that when I when I find it. Even though Morgan Freeman had been working for several years, you cast him in Street Smart, and that put him on the map. And what made you cast him as Fast Black or Leo Smalls? Well, the casting director brought him in. I didn't know him. I didn't know him. He had been on stage and, and on television for about 30 years, but I didn't know when he came in. He was just so charming. And uh, we sat, we talked about, oh, I don't know, 30 minutes. In the middle of the conversation, he just reached into his bag and pulled out a banana and started eating a banana. And I thought that was so, so wonderful and so outrageous to come on an interview and then just start eating a banana in the middle of it, which he was trying to tell me he knew who he was. And I felt my character was a character who really knew who he was. So uh, I, I remember going home that evening, and uh, because I, I was thinking of a younger person for the part, quite honestly. And he read for me, and I was so impressed with his reading that uh, I went home. I remember telling my wife that I had read an actor that was just fantastic, and I think I'll change the part to, to uh, accommodate him. And we did, and of course, he was just fantastic in it. I also want to say I was at a film festival a couple of years back, and somebody asked what was his favorite part, and he said the part in Street Smart. Uh, I've been very fortunate that way. Uh, Morgan has said that. Uh, Gene Hackman has said that. I think Faye Dunaway is coming around to thinking that, too. And, you know, they've all done such great work that it's very flattering when they say something like that. Uh, I have one more question about casting. I recently watched the HBO documentary Casting By, and you talked about the casting of Al Pacino, but I want to know how you cast Kitty Wynn because she was just equally as good, maybe oh, better. And could you talk about casting Kitty Wynn? Yeah, I uh, Dominic Dunn, the producer of the film, had seen her in a play. Uh, she was part of a San Francisco repertory company, and he called me and told me he had seen this uh, person he'd like me to see her so I went out and I looked at her and I thought she was just fantastic we we had a lunch and spent a lot of time just talking and she had the 
innocence and vulnerability that I thought would would attract a junkie, you know, if if they were if they were interested at all in the people and the lifestyle. So um, it really impressed me. And strangely enough, after um, after the deal was made with Fox, both rejected Pacino. They said he was too uh, young and they wanted somebody younger. And I was, uh, you know, uh, devastated because I told Dominic that the reason I, I was doing this film was because I had seen Al on stage four years before I ever got into film. And I said, if I ever, if I ever did a film, that's the guy I would want. And now I had heard that uh, Al was interested in this. So um, I immediately, uh, I had turned it down at first, and then I, I went, when I found out that Al was interested, I went back and reread it, thinking of Al and the character, and then I, I you know, I really wanted it. With Kitty, the, uh, the meeting that we had was really very, very good. I had asked her certain questions and how, how she felt about doing certain things, and she said, um, well, you know, she, she, she really thought that she could do a good job with this, and she was so fragile and so vulnerable, and there were a couple of uh, nude scenes that were um, written into the script, and I felt they were necessary because these two people are sort of living together. They don't, they don't think of anything but drugs. And I asked her what she felt, how she felt about the nudity, and she said, what nudity? And I said, well, it's written into the script. And she said, oh, I've got to read that again. But she was just reading the character, and she didn't think anything of it. So she went off on a small holiday, and she sent me a letter saying that, uh, no, she sees nothing wrong with that. Uh, so we went ahead with, um, with that, and then well, or we went ahead to try and make a deal with her. But then Fox said they, they said they would rather have Mia Farrow. They were trying to build up the names as best they could. And I didn't think Mia Farrow, I think she's a wonderful actress, but I didn't think she was right for this because of the fact that she'd have to be innocent and vulnerable. And I think uh, uh, Mia Farrow was right in the middle of a divorce with Frank Sinatra, and, and I thought that that's all the people would be thinking of when they see her. Then uh, they finally agreed to Kitty, and we, um, Al and I and Kitty spent about a month and a half just hanging out and just going to different places where junkies hang out, going to seminars and uh, in hospitals and uh, just trying to become as much a part of it as possible. And I think when we started, I remember having some troubles with Kitty, and I, I called her one night and I told her that I think she's just not letting go enough. She has to really get with it. And, um, and I, I reminded her of certain things we saw when we were uh, hanging out at different places that uh, addicts would hang out. And uh, she was very upset about that. But she went out that night by herself and started to um, recount the experiences we had before. And she came back and she just was absolutely stupendous. I mean, this because I, I, I love her performance. Actually, I saw the film Last week, they made a, a DCP of it, and I, I remarked every time I see her, she's just so fantastic. Why she didn't go on with her career, I don't know. That was my next question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, most, most everybody says, you know, whatever happened to Kitty Wynn? I know she, she did some small parts in uh, some exorcists, uh, I think two exorcists, and, uh, and then I do know she got married, and maybe it's that, that uh, sort of... Uh, took her away from um, the limelight. 
in several of your movies, Puzzle of a Downfall <laughs> Child, The Seduction of Joe Tynan, Honeysuckle Rose, No Small Affair, and Street Smart, you deal with celebrity or fame and the effect it has a, on a person. Uh, what's your attraction to that theme? I think that's what, I mean, I've always noticed that sort of a, a tragic frame of mind that most uh, people get into. They always want to be a celebrity or a star uh, immediately. They don't really want to work for it. And you do have to work for it. And I, and I think being brought up in New York, you, you see a lot of marginal people and you see um, the uh, they're striving to you know, the American dream, which is what we've all been taught forever and ever. And the American dream doesn't come uh, just overnight and I, I remember uh, talking to some students and uh, they, uh, one of the questions was uh, you know how do you make a successful film <laughs> you know and I said well what do you mean by success if you mean how do you make money I don't know if you mean did I accomplish what I set out to accomplish well you just have to really work at it and know what you're going for and know what you you have in mind and to me that's success if you can achieve what you set out to do but uh, I think also uh, in the 80s, the, uh, the uh, generation of young people was even more into celebrity and trying to be, uh, you know, make a lot of money fast. But it just didn't happen that way. You know, you have to really work at it. You said on Panic in Needle Park you had a month and a half of rehearsal time with Al and Kitty. How much rehearsal time did you have with Gene Hackman and Al Pacino on Scarecrow? Uh, we had two weeks of, uh, of formal rehearsal. Uh, when I said uh, about a month and a half with Alan Kitty, that wasn't really rehearsal. It was just research, just hanging out together. When we when we finally got down to uh, rehearsal, it's basically usually two weeks. We just read through the script. We don't don't even I don't even like to go into the acting. I just want to hear what it sounds like coming from their mouths and seeing how they react to the lines. And uh, and it gives us uh, it gives them a chance to question certain things. I think on most of my films, it's uh, it's basically about two weeks of just reading the script around a table, with as many of the actors as we can get in. Was there a lot of improvisation on Scarecrow? I always leave room for improvisation, and uh, and I always leave room for surprises to uh, to allow uh, the actors who are really the characters by now uh, to react the way they would. I know, uh, as an example, in Scarecrow, right in the first scene on the road, I knew that I had one car coming through, and um, I knew they would react to it, but then I told my first assistant to send another car through, and they really reacted to that they, and, and they just improvised the whole thing of course we had to reshoot certain things well, not reshoot we had to uh, accommodate certain things that they uh, they invented two of them though are so fantastic they that they can uh, you know they think so quickly as characters they, they approach their characters quite differently i think hackman probably does a lot of his homework but when he comes to the set He's Hackman when he puts on the costume. He's Max uh, with Al. He hardly ever leaves the character. He stays with the character uh, quite through the whole film. There's a wonderful moment in that movie where Gene Hackman at the restaurant orders a <clears throat> bottle of beer and a chocolate donut, and the Al Pacino character just loses it, bust out laughing. Was that an improvised moment? Absolutely. 
Well, with, with Hackman, I noticed that if I wouldn't cut at the end of a scene, he'll try to be funny or try to do something outrageous to, uh, you know, make us laugh or, or just, just be outrageous. So I, I normally, uh, when I got to the end of the scene, I wouldn't cut. I would just leave it there for a while. And you can see by the character of Al's laugh, that was so genuine. You know, it, you know, it's tough for an actor to do things like acting and like laughing and crying, but he really was uh, affected by uh, Gene's line. Is it true you want to make a Scarecrow sequel, a follow-up? Well, I've already written a, a script to it. Uh, it's going to be very difficult. One, uh, Hackman has retired, and uh, once he makes up his mind to do something, that's it. With Pacino, I've sent it to him. I've, I've talked to him. We've had a couple of meals, lunches and dinners, and, uh, and I did talk to him about it, and I sent it to him about a month ago. I haven't heard back yet. If he were interested, then I'd pursue it a little further. I don't think it would be easy because uh, it's not the kind of film that Warner Brothers would want to make. The, probably the only way it could get done is if uh, maybe get some foreign money and uh, get permission to... I, I, don't, I don't even know what we have to get permission for. You know, I don't know how much of it they own. Maybe it's reverted back to the original author, which I would have to find out. But first, I'd want to find out. And if Al was interested, I would work the script either to eliminate the Hackman character or find somebody else because it takes place 30 years later and if I found a good enough actor you know people do change over 30 years but uh, yeah I, I like the script very much and uh, it, it's great fun you know it, it incorporates where we left off in the other one the two of them have a very successful car wash and the story now revolves around the son that Pacino thinks is dead Oh, okay. When I watch your movies, they end, but it's like nothing is resolved. We don't know what's <laughs> going to happen and what, yeah, to your characters. And what's your attraction to that type of story? Well, I spend a lot of time trying to figure that out. I think as long as people are living, there's always a little hope. Uh, you know, there's a, I, I'm, I'm sort of optimistic uh, about things like that, and I like to uh, leave it that way because if you – if you actually have somebody die at the end of something that you want to live, that's the end of it. I, I like to leave it open to see, uh, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to those two people in uh, panic, whether they're going to go back to drugs, whether they'll find a life. But right at the moment, they really want each other. And uh, I had a, a funny incident with uh, Harold Pinter, who wrote another film of mine, um, Reunion. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yes, I am. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, Reunion, well, Harold and I went to Germany to do some uh, location scouting, and uh, we were having dinner one night with somebody, uh, one of his publisher's representatives, and uh, Harold was throwing down some champagne, and he gets a little high on it, and he doesn't like to talk to, about his work as much as he likes to talk about politics. So he started, we started talking about politics, and he told me how pessimistic he is, how he thinks the world is, you know, just in dreadful shape and so on and so forth. And I kept saying, well, you know, I'm a little optimistic about it. I always think that there's hope. And he said, well, why? And he, and he explained, well, how can you think there's hope when this and this is happening and that and that is happening? He said, I join all these organizations because I want to try to prevent that. And he starts to list all the organizations that he uh, supports. And I said, Harold, that's exactly why I'm optimistic. <laughs> And uh, we all had a good laugh over that. 
I, while we're on Harold Pinter, I was on your website and I saw that great picture of Harold Pinter and Donald Pleasance. Uh, right, that's when I did the uh, Man in a Glass booth. You really have done your homework, haven't you? Oh yeah, I sure <laughs> try to. Uh, you know, it's always a pleasure when, when you're interviewed by somebody who knows what they're talking about. Because so much of the time you have an interview and, and people haven't even seen your work. They don't even know what you do. I did a radio interview uh, a while back. We didn't even know what I did. And it was doing really a radio interview. It was just so difficult. Yeah. Uh, was there a story behind that photograph? I was just curious. Uh, well, uh, the, the, the play was uh, the, man, the Man in the Glass Booth. That was the Adolf Eichmann trial. And uh, they wanted to uh, photograph the two of them. They were both in New York. I think it was for Glamour or Vogue, I don't remember. And uh, I just thought, uh, you know, I put one behind the glass store window and the other in front of the glass window and just symbolically do uh, the man in the glass booth. Oh, oh, oh yeah, great. <laughs> uh, on the seduction of Joe Tynan, um your star was Alan Alda, who was also the screenwriter in the movie. What was the pros and cons of having this type of collaboration? Well, I, I thought the film was okay. Uh, the the, the, uh, the cons were that Alan was very um, possessive of his script. He would change his dialogue anytime he wanted, but anytime one of the actors wanted to change something, there was always rejection or negativism. You know, he he wasn't as open to other people and and their requirements because you know when you read a script not every not everybody can do every bit of the dialogue and uh, Barbara Harris at times would have trouble with the um, dialogue and she's such a good actress if an, if an actress like she has trouble with the dialogue then you got to think of, of accommodating that character and he was very uh, narrow about that and that really was difficult and even when when, uh, when I confronted him with that he he used an expletive and he says, I'm the effing author and that's the way it's going to be, you know, and uh, I just don't like attitudes like that. And a lot of what, what had to be changed, I changed in the editing um, after, you know, but it was much, so much more difficult that it didn't allow a, a reactive quality in the actors for one another. But, uh, you know, but I think it's one of my films that I, I had, a, I thought I had a very good cast uh, and because all these people were New York actors, and even some of the bit parts, they were when they, when they acted on the stage in New York, they were above the title. So I was lucky enough. In the early days, we had some great actors coming out of New York. Before uh, Honey Silk Rose, Willie Nelson had a supporting part in The Electric Horseman, and in Honey Silk Rose, he had the the lead. And what was the challenge of directing Mr. Nelson, who is essentially a singer? Well, uh, I didn't, um, you know, I saw him in Electric Horseman. As a matter of fact, that's how I got it, because Sidney Pollack uh, suggested me for, uh, listen, Sidney directed Electric Horseman. I, I, I approached it the same way. I met with Willie, and I saw what I thought he could do, and if I could just get what he is, I would be satisfied, because we were working on the script for a long time, and I spent about three months on the road with them, and I just felt that he and the band were so tuned in to what they were doing, I just wanted to do that. I just wanted to do a film of almost them on the road and, the, and, and with, with the way they act. And, and a lot of the stuff was written um, as we'd see them do it. You know, I don't think he's a great actor, but he's a, a great artist, and uh, he, he just fit right in.
Yeah, uh, you also directed a film called No Small Affair, which is about a young photographer who falls in love with the subject. And you started out as a photographer. Was there any biographical aspects to the story that you? Sure, I fall in love with so many of my subjects. You know, uh, uh, it's. Uh, I think that's a natural progression. And he was very young and naive, and, and she was she was sort of teaching him about life. I think we all go through periods like that. Uh, you co-wrote the story and directed Puzzle of the Downfall Child. Could you just discuss the origin of the story? Yeah, it uh, it's based on a uh, a model that I worked with who was uh, she was quite a, a great model in the uh, 60s and uh, 50s, late 50s and, and 60s. And I noticed that when a magazine just wanted to get rid of them because they felt they were getting past a certain age, they would just dump them, not you know, and not have any uh, feelings about it. And I, I just, uh, I had too much feelings. I, I, I've noticed some of them that became drug addicts, alcoholics, because it's such a short career. Basically, they work for uh, three, four, five years, and that's the end of it. And in that period of time that they're working, they're given such grand treatment, you know, they've flown all over the world, stay at, at fine hotels, and then, uh, and, and they get used to spending that kind of money, and before they know it, they're not working anymore, and there's no more money left. I know some that have become homeless, uh, along with addicts, and, uh, and I just, I just felt very touched by that, and since one of them was a very dear friend of mine who, who actually did so much for me, she would uh, work for me for nothing just to help me uh, get my book when I was an assistant. I just want to do something for her and for all the other people. And I, I almost think it's uh, also a metaphor for the way we, uh, we work in America. As soon as somebody gets a little bit old, they just discard them and uh, look for the new young which is okay, but I think maybe we should now, especially since we're all living so much longer, we should teach our young people in school that, you know, you may have a career up to a certain point and, you know, maybe 55, 60, and you you got to prepare yourself for those 20, 30 years that you might live longer because you can't just retire and, and, and hope that the, the government's going to pay for everything. So, uh, but I, I just think that that's the way we're trained, you know. You stated that you recorded um, conversations with the actual model. Did you literally transcribe the conversations to the script? No. I, I have about three and a half hours of uh, tape of the, uh, the actual model. Uh, at the beginning, when I first got, got started, uh, Isbaugh Merchant was interested in uh, producing the film. And we went to India. We talked to uh, Isbal for a while, and, and it went on for about five or six months. And, Is, and Isbal was still in India. And I was—I had met Carol through a mutual friend, and I loved her writing. And uh, I kept saying to her, I kept calling her and saying, "Don't worry, Carol. I still haven't forgotten about you." And Carol said, "Oh yeah, oh yeah." You know, she didn't think very much of it. And I realized later on that she. Uh, she liked the idea, but we didn't have um, a script yet, and, and uh, I had introduced her to Faye Dunaway, and uh, I thought she'd be, you know, just frothing at the mouth to get into it, but she just took it easy, and she was very cool about it. But then, finally, I had to tell uh, Ismail Merchant that I'm going to move ahead without him, because he doesn't seem to be coming back from India. 
we talked about that, and uh, I started to make a move in that direction. But then I went out to California, and I brought the uh, tape. Carol had not heard the tape at all. And she came to visit me, and she said, I can't stay very long because I, I have a friend of mine in the car, and she's uh, got a very bad toothache. I've got to take her to the dentist. I didn't know whether that was a sham or whether she whether it was the truth, but I wanted to you know, at least hear some of the tape. So I told her there were three and a half hours. She said, oh, no, I could never listen to that. Uh, but, you know, I'll start to listen and see what, what's in there. So I, I put the tape on, and she just got mesmerized by the character, by the speech pattern, by everything in the tape. And she stayed the whole three and a half hours and, and listened to it, and that became the basis for it. But a lot of uh, the, uh, you, you can see her speech pattern, her malprops, uh, just the way she... Um, she relates stories, you know, she, uh, the, there's a Chinese element in the story, and that comes with her uh, saying, because I think my, my model just wanted to please me, and she'd make up stories. I, I, you know, I don't know to this day, so that's the, what our character became, somebody who didn't, you know, didn't really know whether she was saying the truth or it was fantasy. Carol picked up on things like that, and uh, I, I just uh, loved working with her. We tried to do a, another project, and then about 25 years later, we did have something, and and before we were able to get it on, she died. So uh, we just put that on the side. Did the model ever see the movie, and what did she think? Well, she loved it. Yeah, she saw it, and she died shortly after the movie. She died quite young of cancer. But I, her kids have seen it, and every time I screen it, or we have it screened, uh, I invite them over to see it. Okay, and this is just the final question. Like I said, I was on your website, jerryshotsberg.com, and I was looking at your personality photographs, and I'm a huge fan of Sam Fuller, and could you discuss the story behind the photograph of Sam Fuller? Yeah, I, I met Sam in uh, Paris through mutual friends, and then uh, there was uh, an American, uh, his name was Jerry Rudin, that had a uh, a film festival in um, Avignon in, in France. And uh, he would invite me to the festival, and uh, he invited Sam to the festival, and Sam became a regular, and I became a regular there. And it was a really interesting uh, festival because the people who would come to see the films would be able to come to the cafes after and sit around with us, you know, uh, and, and we all talk. And Sam was in, in the cafe, and I was talking to him, and I just, you know, said, you mind if I take some pictures? And he said, no, 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 you know, big cigar. <laughs> but uh, but he, I, I loved him. He's a great guy. I would like to thank Jerry Schatzberg for granting us the interview. So come to the downtown public library on 615 Church Street to see Sweet Revenge. It's showing Saturday, April 12th at 2 p.m. Remember, it's free. And today's music is On the Road by Willie Nelson.